0: Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 1.28, The Fundamental Orders of Connecticut. Last time, we spent our episode exploring the political scene in Massachusetts before dropping in for a quick peek at what was going on down in the Plymouth Colony. This week, we are going to follow the same basic style. We are going to spend the majority of today looking at the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, a document that at least has an argument as being the first written constitution. Following this discussion, we will stop in in Rhode Island for a quick peek at what has been going on there. Before we jump into today's topic, I want to give you all a brief update on the game plan for the rest of this season. My plan is to wrap up the New England colonies in our next episode. After all, we have, as of this episode, spent half of the podcast in New England. So next week, I'm going to address a few lingering questions and that will wrap up getting New England up onto its feet. I then am planning on an episode to address the institution of slavery in the colonies and how that came to be and importantly, how it manifests itself through English North America. I will then wrap up the first season with a two-part episode that will attempt to make sense of everything we have talked about so far this season. Then, we're going to jump right on in to season number two. So there you go you now have a breakdown of how the rest of the first season of this podcast is going to go from here on out. Before we do any of that, however, we need to first wrap up in New England, and today that means diving in to the fundamental orders of Connecticut. When we last left our friends in Connecticut, they were just wrapping up the Pequot War. Modern day Connecticut at this point was actually made up of two primary colonies, specifically the Connecticut Colony and the New Haven Colony. The New Haven colony was relatively short-lived, having come into existence in 1638 and lasting only until 1664. The New Haven colony existed without a charter, which proved to be a serious problem for it establishing a legitimate claim on its land. Connecticut was more than happy to take advantage of this. Ultimately, a combination of factors would do in New Haven. Following the English Restoration, when the nation was put back in control of House Stuart under Charles II, New Haven became a popular place for the regicidal judges to hide out. This isn't something that really endeared New Haven to the English, and they were not terribly keen on granting a colony a royal charter while they continued to hide these judges. The fatal blow would come in 1662 when Connecticut got themselves a royal charter, which in structure essentially ended New Haven's time as an independent colony. Over the next two years, Connecticut would gobble up the towns that had made up New Haven. New Haven will come up occasionally in the next few episodes, but we are going to mostly be focused in Connecticut. So don't stress too much about New Haven other than knowing that it was once upon a time a thing. We have seen before that there was a need amongst colonists to justify their existence through the form of a compact. In this way, there is nothing revolutionary at all about what would become the fundamental orders of Connecticut. The Pilgrims had written their Mayflower Compact nearly two decades before. As you may recall, the Mayflower Compact stood more as a mission statement than it did anything truly resembling a constitution. Other colonies had taken note and the compact became an important part of colonial governance. These compacts were often the source of, and justification for, the authority of the colonial governments. These early compacts were, as I mentioned a moment ago, more akin to mission statements than anything really laying out the functioning of government. Where the fundamental order of Connecticut differs is the detail that it does lay out, including important limits on the government. The fundamental orders were born out of a land ownership issue. The Massachusetts General Court was called in and created a commission known as the March Commission. The General Court put Roger Ludlow at the head of the group. The problem is that the commission had been called in 1635 and had only been set to last for a year. However, even after the time for the March Commission had expired in 1636, the group went ahead and stayed together and it became the de facto government of the colony. Yet, as we have seen before with the other colonies, this put Connecticut in a precarious position. Yeah, it's wonderful and all that they have self-government, however, there does not appear to be much in the way of anything that is actually granting the justification for that government to exist. This alone drives the need for something more stable, which would eventually emerge in the form of a government compact. By 1638, Ludlow, amongst others, were actively working on creating something that would provide the colony with the foundation for their government. On January 14, 1639, the product of these efforts was produced and the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut was adopted. The Fundamental Orders are made up of 11 parts and are, unfortunately, not the beautifully drafted prose that you would see in the later documents like the Declaration of Independence, or even in the highly organized US federal constitution. That said, it is pretty short, so I would encourage you to head to the website where I've put up a link to the copy. So before we go into much discussion of the importance of the document, let's take some time to look at the fundamental orders and how it actually functions. Beginning by looking at the preamble, we once again are reminded of just how religious of a society that this really is. The government here is rooted deeply in religion. The preamble states that the document would serve as a confederation between Windsor, Hartford, and Wethersfield. The idea of a single document acting as a compact between the different towns does give the fundamental orders a feeling of being something of a confederation. Three equal towns coming together under a single document that is designed to protect the general group. In terms of the religious connections in the documents, it is interesting to note again that part of the preamble lays out that beyond the maintenance of order, and the general peace, and the need to preserve the personal liberties of the group, there is also the portion stating that they wish to maintain the purity of the gospel. In order to accomplish these ends, it is necessary that a government be formed. In this effect, the preamble lays out the justification for why a government was needed in the first place. It then went further and specifically described the goals and the reaches of that same government. This seems like a simple and obvious thing, however, be careful not to consider this as somebody living in the 21st century. The colonists were making an attempt to justify why government is necessary, which, in a world where arbitrary government was such a concern, sure does seem like a step in the right direction. Of course, whenever we look at the justification for such statements, we must also look at the pragmatic considerations. The government of Connecticut was also going to need to justify their existence to both the other colonies, and most importantly, England, should they ever come asking. So while we can't totally discount the fact that these decisions were being made for practical purposes, we do certainly see things moving in an interesting direction with this apparent need to justify the government's existence. The fundamental orders lay out a structure of government that is similar to what we see in Massachusetts. Twice a year, in April and September, the government would meet, though provisions did allow special sessions to be called as necessary. The April meeting was done with the intention of electing that year's government. The subsequent September meeting was held with the express plan to make laws for the colony. Voting was simple enough, with each eligible voter writing a name on a slip of paper. A simple majority was needed for election. The government itself is pretty much what we have already seen over Massachusetts, which, considering the origins of the colony, that shouldn't be much of a surprise. Men like Thomas Hooker, who was a principal author of the Fundamental Order, was coming in from the Massachusetts Bay Colony. At the top of the structure, you had a governor. The governor had to be a member of the church, because, you know, obviously. However, more interestingly, he also had to be a former magistrate. This serves a dual purpose. First, it assures that whoever becomes the governor is not totally new to the governance and issues facing the colony. After all, it makes sense that any incoming leader understand the challenges facing their people. More realistically, the colonists likely viewed this provision as a check against a potential populist governor. It means that anybody coming into the colony from the outside cannot immediately move into the highest seat in the government. In a colony that is so concerned with maintaining a strict religious structure, it makes complete sense that anybody coming into the colony would need to be totally vetted before being allowed anywhere near the reins of power. If somebody comes in and immediately runs for a position in the government, they will need to begin as a magistrate where everybody can clearly see what kind of person they are and what, if any, potential threat they pose to the stability of the colony's existing systems. Also of interest is that the fundamental order restricts a person from serving consecutive terms as governor. Now, there are no term limits in existence, so you can be governor as many times as you want. However, serving back-to-back years was not going to happen. This is an interesting decision, and it doesn't mirror what we see in the Massachusetts colony. John Winthrop repeatedly serves multi-year stints as the governor. Likewise, there are literally no records that come out of the colony while the fundamental orders were being drafted. So the best we can do is wager an educated guess. Considering that we have already discussed this deep-set fear of arbitrary government in the colony, it seems that by restricting a governor from serving multiple consecutive terms, it would act as a check against that concern. No one person would be able to ever gain so much of a foothold in the colony that they would become the supreme head of it. It meant that the power was always being redistributed amongst individuals in the colony and could invest for too long in any single person. This is potentially a powerful way to keep the politics from orbiting around any single person. Now, there is a pretty obvious shortcoming with this strategy. Sure, you're not going to have any one person gain too much power, which, yay, that's awesome. Two people, however, is a totally different story. With the provision being that you couldn't serve two back-to-back terms, it opened up the possibility that two people could just continually switch off. Which, yep, that's exactly what happened. Between 1639 and 1656, the governor's seat just trades off between John Haynes and Edward Hopkins. George Wallace did manage to sneak in there for a single year in 1642, but other than that, the first 17 years under the fundamental order sees only three people hold the highest office, And for 16 of those 17 years, there is literally just two guys switching back and forth. The real power of the colony was vested in the general court. It was the general court that had the right to pass and repeal the laws. They are the ones who had the right to assess taxes and handle all matters of government. Well, the governor stood at the head. It was the general court that truly had the power here. The power of the General Court in many ways was reflective of the struggle of the Puritans back in England, and the deep and unwavering fear of arbitrary government. This is best exemplified by the provision in the fundamental order that actually gives the General Court the ability to call itself, should the Governor and the Magistrates neglect that duty. This is something that is very clearly rooted in events going back to England. As we have discussed, the Puritans were a large percentage of Parliament throughout the 1620s. They were a group that was hit hard by Charles I during the period of personal rule and viewed such actions on his part to be utterly despotic. Having a provision in the fundamental orders to give the general court the ability to call itself prevented a governor from having any similar period of personal rule. In this manner, the colonists showed their desire to keep the government from becoming too centralized. One of the most key differences between the Fundamental Orders and the Massachusetts Body of Liberties was the relationship between the church and the body politic. In Massachusetts, voting was limited to church members. This is something that would ensure that the voting base remained extremely centralized to a group that Massachusetts wanted voting. Now, Connecticut does not go as far as Massachusetts to limit the vote. Instead of outright limiting the vote, the colonists in Connecticut decided that they would use an oath of fealty to the church for their elected officials. Since it is short enough, I'll go ahead right now and just give you the oath. There I, A.B., being by the providence of God an inhabitant within the jurisdiction of Connecticut, do acknowledge myself to be subject to the government thereof. And do swear by the great and dreadful name of the ever-living God to be true and faithful unto the same, and do submit both my person and estate thereunto, according to all the wholesome laws and orders that are either, are, or hereafter shall be made by lawful authority, and that I will neither plot nor practice any evil against the same, nor consent that any shall so do." but will timely discourage the same to the lawful authority established there, and that I will maintain as I am duty-bound the honor of the same and the lawful magistrates thereof, promoting the public good thereof, whilst I shall so continue an inhabitant there, and when so I shall give my vote, suffrage or proxy, being called thereunto touching any matter which concerns this commonwealth, I will give it as in my conscience may concede, To the best good of the same, which, out of respect of the person or favor of any man, so help me God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, through this oath, it is still going to be required that anybody trying to make their place in the colony was going to have to effectively be a member of the church. However, an oath does seem like less of an outright prohibition than what we've seen in Massachusetts. It is also around this time that we see an absolute explosion of oaths as a means of gaining compliance throughout the colonies. This is something that is going to stick around for a long time and even arguably up until modern times. Much of the political and legal system today continues to use oaths as an important part of ensuring honesty and making sure people remain within the acceptable confines of the political systems. One of the biggest questions surrounding the fundamental orders is whether or not it should be considered a constitution, and if so, how is it different from other documents that came before it? In some ways, this is a conversation that doesn't really mean much. We are at this point just arguing over semantics here and not the actual substance of the document. I mean, it doesn't really matter what you want to define the fundamental order as. They are what they are. However, it is still an interesting question to debate, so let's take a few minutes and discuss the validity of calling the fundamental orders a constitution. One of the hardest things when ever having this discussion is something that we had talked about back in our episode on the Mayflower Compact. It is incredibly tempting for those of us living in the United States today to turn back and try to write our own origin story. We hold the federal constitution in such high reverence that it should not come with much surprise that any group that has a claim to its democratic origins is gonna wanna make that claim. In this particular case, the state of Connecticut calls itself the Constitution State, largely because of the fundamental orders. And hey, who can really blame Connecticut? Being able to claim that your state is the place where the origins of the U.S. Constitution formed up? Well, that's a pretty cool claim to be able to make. The problem, of course, is that it is loaded with bias and motivation. Of course, you would want your state to be the constitution state. That's a very good look to have and is something that any state would be anxious to claim as their own. So let's start by looking at the argument that the fundamental order is, in fact, a constitution. The first place my attention is drawn to is the difference between the fundamental orders and the things that came before it. The Mayflower Compact is another document that, over its lifespan, has been touted as the first written constitution. However, the Mayflower Compact doesn't really include much in the way of any practical information regarding on how the government should function. Instead, the Mayflower Compact reads much in the same way that you would expect a preamble to read. There is nothing in the Mayflower Compact that lays out how to run the government, how voting would work, nor anything that describes the structure of that government. In this way, the Fundamental Orders is light years ahead of the Mayflower Compact. The Fundamental Orders does a good job describing how the government should function. It includes important safeguards to protect the rights of the people. Remember that just a few minutes ago we were talking about the fact that the General Court was not reliant on the governor nor the magistrates to call itself to order. This means that, importantly... The Fundamental Orders was a document that didn't just establish government and give it a channel to legitimately flow through, but it also instituted limits upon itself. The limits of government is going to become a huge talking point in the next 150 years as the Constitution and the Bill of Rights set out to do just that. And while it is completely unfair and flat out wrong to compare the Federal Orders' limitations to those in the eventual Federal Constitution, This is certainly a step towards that eventuality. You can also differentiate the fundamental orders from the Massachusetts Body of Liberties in its scope. The Massachusetts Body of Liberties is a legal codification by its very form. Yes, there are portions that talk about how the colony should function. However, the actual nuts and bolts are largely contained in the charter. The Body of Liberties is a legal code, which is nothing new. There had, by 1640, been numerous legal codes going back thousands of years, The Fundamental Order, however, is not a legal code. There is nothing in the document laying out the laws of the colony. Instead, the Fundamental Order focuses exclusively on how the government would function. The Fundamental Order does stand apart in this regard. Unlike earlier documents such as the Mayflower Compact, the Fundamental Orders are far more than just a mission statement. They go beyond the material that we would expect to be contained in a preamble and goes into the actual functioning of the government. The Fundamental Orders lay out a well-organized framework for the functioning of government. This does make the Fundamental Order stand out as something different from what had come before it. Finally, consider the formation of the Fundamental Orders. This is not a document that was handed down by some outside group. Instead, it was created by the colonists that would be living under it. This is an important aspect of the Fundamental Orders, which is important, though not entirely unique within the colonial structure. However, it is impossible to discount the fact that the colonists came together, formed a government which would ultimately rule over them, and laid out the structures and limitations to the power to which they would yield. It's worth noting here that, in the same vein, one of the things that is conspicuously absent from the fundamental orders is any mention of allegiance to any other colonies, and more importantly, any mention of Charles I. While historians seem torn on whether or not this is something that was deliberate, either way, it is worthy of a mention. In this way, the Fundamental Orders does appear to be a constitution. It sets how the government would function. It places limitations and safeguards within that structure. And most importantly, it is a written document which was drafted expressly for the purpose of establishing a framework for, and limitations to, the government. The Fundamental Orders are organized, succinct, and well-crafted. In this manner, the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut do indeed look a lot like a constitution. Okay, so clearly the Fundamental Orders are a constitution, right? Well, not so fast. As other historians point out, the Fundamental Orders fail to rise to the level of an actual constitution. As we spoke about a moment ago, everybody wants to look back into colonial history and find the origins of constitutionalism. The desire to find evidence that the colonies were writing constitutions all the way back in the 1640s has seen evidence everywhere for it, despite the fact that that evidence doesn't really exist. This is the same argument that we see in regards to the Mayflower Compact, where practically nobody even noticed it was a thing until it became a piece of propaganda during the late 18th and early 19th century. Among the primary arguments that the fundamental orders were not a constitution is that very little of it could be considered unique. Looking at the fundamental orders, very little in them is different than what already existed over in Massachusetts. Of course, Connecticut was born out of Massachusetts, so it is hardly a surprising thing that we would see their politics largely fall in line with what we had already seen in plays of Massachusetts. The voting base was slightly more inclusive as there was not an explicit rule that one had to be a church member to vote. However, beyond that, it is pretty much the same as what we have already seen in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The only real difference is not in the substance, but rather in the form. Furthermore, those opposed to this being a constitution look at what is a very rigid structure that is at the same time both vague and inflexible. While broad outlines for government are given, the fundamental orders never go into much detail about the powers of the individual officeholders. It is questionable if this was done intentionally, in order to give as much leeway and flexibility to that individual, or if it was simply an oversight. Either way, however, the result is the same, that there is not always a clear delineation and boundaries to the offices established. At the same time, the document would prove to be exceedingly inflexible in that there was no method whereby the order could be amended. Inflexibility and the lack of defined powers alone, however, does not mean that this isn't a constitution. It could be argued that this is still a constitution with key provisions that have been omitted. An incomplete constitution is still a constitution. On their face, the fundamental orders appear to act as the basis of a democratic government. However, beyond looking decent in theory, the fundamental orders fall below the standard that one would expect to see in a truly democratic system. The problems come back to the same thing that we see in Massachusetts. There is voting, which is, of course, democratic in nature. However, those who could hold office were very limited. These limitations are formed on the basis of religion, an undeniable desire throughout all the colonies in New England, Rhode Island aside, to keep the outsiders where they belong on the outside. And while we shouldn't discount the fact that there was not as clear cut of a prohibition in serving in the government as we see over in the Bay Colony, the preamble and oaths required get us to practically the same place. So what is the fundamental order of Connecticut? Is it the framework for a constitutional government or not? The general consensus out there leans in the direction that the fundamental orders are not a constitution. They lay out a system of government and a basic outline of how that system should run. They even make some inroads towards placing limitations on power. We see that the general court can call itself to session without the need of a governor. Elected officials are not officially tied down to a specific religion, despite the fact that in practice they are. Even if you don't fit the requirements for office, you still at least had a vote. Finally, although we discuss problems that arose from it, Limiting the governor from consecutive terms is a check on potentially arbitrary government. Ultimately, however, the fundamental orders cannot be seen as being a direct step towards the federal constitution. While there were a few checks on power, they were limited in scope. The fundamental orders is certainly not steeped in any kind of enlightened ideals or anything resembling it. Rather, it is based on the pragmatism of the moment. And while there are some key differences, for the most part, the fundamental orders are what we had previously seen in place in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. There is nothing revolutionary about the content of the document. Rather, what the fundamental orders do is give a new structure to something that already existed. The fundamental orders are undeniably an organized and well-put-together attempt to lay out the boundaries of government. For that, Kudos to the Connecticut colonists, who did truly put something impressive together, even if it doesn't quite meet the standards of a constitution in the sense that we think about it today. I want to say, however, that I think one of the biggest dangers when studying this era in history is wanting so desperately to fit these early founding documents into the mold of the federal constitution. It is disingenuous to those documents, and in almost all cases, it's going to be just flat out wrong. Instead of searching high and low for a document that is a direct precursor to the Constitution, I would argue that you should look at all of these documents as a whole. The federal Constitution that is going to emerge is not the product of just one or two lines of thought. It is the result of hundreds of works and philosophies. Is the Fundamental Order one of these documents? Yes, I am absolutely willing to say that it is. Can you draw a direct line from the fundamental orders to the federal constitution that's going to arise in the 1780s? Probably not quite as easily. The fundamental order, therefore, remains one of a plethora of things that would find itself inspiring what comes out of Philadelphia in the summer of 1788. To wrap up today, I want to spend just a few minutes and take a peek in on all of our political outcasts hanging out in Rhode Island. For the most part, not much has really changed since our episode on Roger Williams. Rhode Island is still a collection of settlements, with Providence being the biggest, made up of those who didn't quite fit in back over in Massachusetts. Rhode Island remains a unique spot in our story. It is the closest any of the colonies came to being a democracy, and in fact did operate under the general principles of popular sovereignty. The problem was that for those early years in Rhode Island, what was a truly interesting experiment was largely hampered by internal divisions. However, things were beginning to stabilize, and by the end of the 1640s, all but Warwick had come into the fold and were essentially operating as a single colony. It is impossible to say that Rhode Island was not a religious community. This is 1640s New England, and seriously guys, everybody is really religiously inclined. The difference in Rhode Island, however, are those things that we spent so long discussing in the episode on Roger Williams. In this regard, we do not see a system of government take place that places the church in any special role. Concepts like separation of church and state do flourish in Rhode Island. Throughout the documents we see getting produced during this time, Rhode Island does base their system on the ideas of popular sovereignty. People had a vote, without the strings that we see attached elsewhere throughout New England. However, it is impossible to overlook the fact that whenever talking about the early colonial period, Rhode Island is so often ignored the center of the New England universe is and will remain Massachusetts. Connecticut and Plymouth are hanging on around the edges of that orbit. However, they are still a million miles away from Rhode Island. In every aspect, the other colonies in New England looked at Rhode Island with a mixture of distrust and outright contempt. In 1643, when the New England Confederation was formed for the common defense of the New England colonies, those who joined were Massachusetts, Plymouth, Connecticut, and New Haven, It is not an accident that Rhode Island was snubbed. All of this came together to make sure that Rhode Island's population remained much lower than the other colonies. I've seen various estimates on the population, however nearly all agree that in 1650 the population of Rhode Island was well under 1,000 people. For comparison, most estimates I see place the population of Massachusetts at around 15,000 and Connecticut around 5,000. No matter how you turn it, Rhode Island is a relatively small blip on the radar, which is something I'm sure the other New England colonies were plenty happy with. The other colonies in New England are always pretty steadfast against anything that is going to disrupt their carefully choreographed social order. Everything about Rhode Island threatened that order. For the rest of New England, Rhode Island was something that they wanted to make sure stayed small and uninfluential. For the most part, this is going to actually work. The reason why there isn't more written on the early colonial history of Rhode Island, despite the fact that they are working on some truly revolutionary ideas, is probably because they made up such a small part of the New England world. The population remains low, and the ideas being expressed within are largely contained within that colony. This is going to limit the influence of Rhode Island throughout the period, that we have been discussing and will continue to limit that influence as we move forward. We have spent the last 14 episodes in the world of New England. Next time, we are going to wrap up our series on New England. I've got a few other topics that I would like to briefly cover, and then we are going to spend the rest of the episode looking at the region overall as we approach 1650. When next week is wrapped up, we will be able to put New England behind us, and we will be marching quickly towards the end of our first season of this podcast. So, come back here in two weeks and we will conclude our story on the founding of the New England Colonies.